Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. Hello, everyone. It is 2 o'clock, dead at 2 o'clock, on Friday, August the 21st, 2020, and that means it's time for this week's trip down the homeward path. My name is Adam. I'm a husband, father of three, and just finished 46, down 40, it was closer to 48 hours of work this week, and I do this show for one reason. Magic is hard, so is improving at it. And it's all harder when other things are more important. But if we focus on our three B's, budgeting, brewing, breaking bad habits, we can overcome. And if that sounds like you, well, uh, I guess that's a good thing because unlike Field of the Dead, I'll still be around here after Monday. (laughs) Please don't ban me, Watsy. We're going to jump into our new show format this week. I've done a little bit of uh, soul searching, revising, doing some kind of updating if you will and by introducing the three b's i decided i would be actually incorporating them into the show as segment pieces but first i am here to remind you that we are sponsored by puremtgo.com puremtgo one of the biggest selections collections of magic content on the web check them out and they're sponsored mtgo traders I've been doing business with them forever. I mean, back when I played Magic Online in 2011, I almost exclusively used MTGO traders to get cards, so this was kind of a no-brainer for me. I'm totally fine with it. Um, While you're browsing the web, don't forget to check out the parent website, constructorcriticism.com. Some of the content there does not necessarily always appear in other places. And, you know, it's always good to check out the original. And while, you know, if you want to want to be a little more direct in your support for this show, patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg. This show's always going to be free, but if you like what we're doing, feel free to head over there and kick in. One of the benefits gets your deck into the new Brew of the Week segment, which we'll get to in a moment. But first, we have a budget spotlight. Because I can't talk about budgeting without talking about some cards that are cheap for no good reason and give you advice on which ones to get into on the cheap. Rather than make that an occasional episode, we're gonna do three of them every week. One uncommon, one rare, and one mythic. This week, the uncommon we're gonna talk about is Eliminate. Eliminate is a multi-format powerhouse. It is smother meets like half a hero's downfall. Like that card is so good. Two mana, kill your three-drop Planeswalker or kill your three-dropper or less creature. Like, let's go down the list of some of the most powerful Planeswalkers ever printed. Narset Parter of Bales, three mana. Teferi Time Raveler, three mana. Oko, Thief of Crowns, three mana. And probably, well, it definitely still would have a press standard, but 
we would have at least had a counter to it if we'd had eliminate in the format with him eliminate is good it's great in standard helps you catch up or keep from falling too far behind it's great in pioneer because you know as formats get larger the average converted mana cost starts to come down and that means as we go back into modern back into legacy the card just gets better and it's even a viable thing to have access to in commander it's still a removal spell in commander for two mana that takes care of two permanent types even if they're a little bit specialized those are permanent types that still see a lot of commander play moving up a rarity slot let's go to rare let's talk about extinction event it's the best sweeper in standard why is this card less than a dollar there's no reason that card should be less than a dollar it's the best sweeper i know people will come back at me with well what about shatter this guy what about uh storm's wrath what about flame sweep what about cry of the carnarium listen extinction events better as someone who's played with pernicious deed as someone who's tried to make gaze of granite work as someone who's tried to fit blast zone into decks somewhat successfully but usually not extinction event is a really 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 good sweeper because it's secretly a modal spell it's surgical when you need it to be it's a blunt instrument when you need it to be you can build around it easily you look at the majority of the standard format right now extinction event naming odd is a very powerful thing because that exiles uro titan of nature's wrath that exiles most of the creatures in the teamer adventure deck Edgewall Innkeeper, Brazen Borrower, Bone Crusher Giant, Lovestruck Beast, Beanstalk Giant. It exiles like all the power cards in the early game against Mono Red. Like it exiles all their one drops. It exiles Annex, not letting them get tokens. It exiles Bone Crusher Giant. It exiles. Uh, if they're playing, you know, a Gruul deck, it exiles Gruul Spellbreaker, it exiles Pelt Collector, it exiles um, Skargan Hellkite. But then on the flip, it also, against a tokens deck, you name it even and you can take out all the tokens. You can build your deck to play mostly even permanents so that you can treat it as an asymmetrical sweeper. Where, you know, a good a sizable chunk of the format, that thing naming odd is gonna sweep everything. On their side, if you're built if your deck is built around playing mostly even cost, for example, a Gyruda deck, well now you can play Extinction Event and never exile your stuff unless you absolutely have to. You know, it can be a bomb or it can be it can be an explosive device or it can be a, a surgical tool. It's very similar to Engineered Explosives, but unlike Engineered Explosives, it's always four mana. It doesn't mess with your mana base as bad, and it exiles. So it gets rid of Uro and Croxa and the like permanently and without triggering death triggers. So powerful. 
And the last one, I can never remember the name of this card. The full name of the card, but we're just going to call it by its first name, Vedra. Uh, it's the Jeskai Mutate thing. Its actual printed mana cost is exactly Jeskai. Uh, white, blue, red. And it is a 3-3 flying first strike. When this creature mutates, you may cast a non-creature spell from your graveyard with converted mana cost three or less without paying its mana cost. That's disgusting. Its mutate cost is one double red and either a blue or a white. Let's talk about why this card is disgusting. I, I have on my notes, I have it's an intriguing build around with high upside. And when I say that, I mean it. In standard right now, it's already disgusting. Because, for example, let's, let's name some cards, some non-creature spells you can cast out of your graveyard that this thing is going to love. Narset Parter of Veils. Sahili Sublime Artificer. Chandra Acolyte of Flame. Those are all non-creature spells with converted mana cost three or less. It does not say instant or sorcery, it says non-creature. Banishing Light. Omen of the Sea. There's so much value in this card. Even something as innocuous as seemingly like dumb and value oriented as cast a shock, cast a light up the stage. It's really powerful. It allows you to get the benefit of the creature immediately. Like you get the value off the card immediately and then whatever's left behind is left behind. To say nothing of how absurd it is with see the truth. Because unlike some other cards, uh, Chandra Acolyte of Flame, Dreadnought Arcanist, uh, Finale of Promise, you don't actually exile the card you cast. You just cast it and then put it back. And here, that's where things get really interesting because if you have an active Dreadhorde Arcanist and to see the truth in your graveyard, you can mutate Vadrock over Dreadhorde Arcanist. Get your mutate trigger, cast See the Truth, add three cards from the top of your deck to your hand. Attack for three, flying first strike, cast it again for free, add three more cards from the top of your deck to your hand, get in there. Like, Dreadhorde Arcanist with three power is exactly what Dreadhorde Arcanist needs. Because Dreadhorde Arcanist with three power casts every proactive spell in the Dreadhorde Arcanist deck. Every time it attacks. So even if you just play a couple of copies of Vadrock in the Is It Tempo deck, that card is really good. It's stupid good. To say nothing of playing something like Sea Dasher Octopus so that you can get an extra mutate trigger every now and then, or Sea Dasher Octopus also works well alongside the same cards like Dreadhorde Arcanist, like Sprite Dragon. That's the other thing. Mutating Vadrock onto Sprite Dragon is really good because you keep plus one, plus one counters. So like the Is It Tempo deck loves Vadrock. 
And it's another one. It's $2. For a card that just, like, it's, it's very niche. It fits into one specific deck. But $2 for a Mythic with that kind of upside is criminal. It's highway robbery, and you should get on your horse and go commit it. And that brings us to our Brew of the Week. I highlight either a, a, an established archetype that one of my patrons has been tuning and has made some changes to and has sent me their list or their concepts or the things they've been working on, or I'm going to highlight something I've been working on that's kind of off the beaten path. This week's is Brandon Wheeler's Mono Green Aggro. I know it sounds boring. I know it sounds sad. I know it sounds depressing that I'm, you know, I'm like pro brew, pro think outside the box, and we're talking about mono green. There's nothing wrong with mono green. Just play it. It's good. It's fine. You don't have to reinvent the wheel every time you build a deck. Sometimes just playing small green dudes that bash your opponent's face in is enough. In Brandon's case, the main changes he made, he maintains all your classic mono green aggro advantages. You have size versus aggro because everything in your deck is big. It either is big or gets big. Pell Collector gets big. Stone Coil Serpent, as you flood out, it gets bigger. Barkhide Troll, big, hard to remove. Questing Beast, big and dumb and lots of text on it. Lovestruck Beast, big and dumb. <laughs> five, five for three, like you're just all about the rate, right? Well, the thing about those big dumb creatures is it's harder for your aggro mirror opponents. If your opponent's relying on chipping in for damage with Robber of the Rich and you just jam a Barkai Troll onto the table, There's a reason the mono red deck has had to start playing more burn spells. There's also a reason the mono red deck has started to die down a little bit in popularity. It's because it does not like having to trade two cards for an opponent's Barkhide Troll at best. <laughs> like you, you have to serve in with a with, with Scorch Spitter or Robber of the Rich, or you have to like invest multiple turns of development into your runaway steam can just to trade it off. That's really awkward. So you can force the mono, you know, in your aggro mirrors, you can almost play the control role without having to try because your stuff is just bigger. Your opponent takes the two for ones themselves to get rid of your stuff. Against mid-range and tempo decks, you're efficient. Your mana curve is really low, with the exception of your, your Planeswalkers and your Questing Beasts. You play a lot of ones and twos and threes, and then you play like Questing Beast and Vivian. So by virtue of the fact that your mana curve is lower, it's really hard for them to keep pace with you. It's hard for them to outvalue you because they have to, like, you're, you're big, you're hulking. You already outsize their creatures in combat, so now they've got to use cards to deal with it. And you get to resolve more spells than they do over the course of a game. On that same note, 
you retain the speed advantage versus control. Because you can still just curve out Pelt Collector into Paradise Druid, into uh, Questing Beast attack you for seven. Like, you know, Pelt Collector on one, Paradise Druid on two, attack for two. Questing Beast on three, attack for seven. Vivian on four. It just, it just gets dumb. It just gets silly really, really quickly. Where Brandon kind of differed from the pack is he maxed out on the interactive elements that the deck has access to. Notably, being in mono green, you don't really have a lot. So Brandon just played all the good ones. All four copies of Primal Might and Ram Through. Because normally with mono green, when you get stonewalled on the board, you're done. Ram Through has an unbelievably appropriate name for itself when you can have your love struck beast fight their annex and trample through. And it doesn't even fight, it just deals the damage and keeps going. Primal Might. Make my big thing bigger and then have it fight your thing and then we'll move to combat. Like, ew. That's, that's horrendous. The key thing, Brandon did a little differently than some of the other lists I've seen. Brandon focuses on grinding at the top of his mana curve. A lot of the mono green lists I've seen are playing like Vivi the four drop Vivian that puts one one counters on and then allows you to fight. And Nissa, who shakes the world, to uh, turn your lands into creatures as you flood out. To just keep up the pressure, you're more interested in just continuing to attack. Brandon's trying to grind. He's not playing Nissa at all. There's no payoff for the extra mana outside of exactly Primal Might and Stone Cold Serpent. So why bother? He's running the Ikoria Vivian, Vivian Monster's Advocate which quickly rebuilds your board presence and digs you to more live cards as your opponent cleans the board. Like, Ikoria Vivian sitting on the table is just a 3-3 every turn. Like, if that's the worst, if that's the worst thing you're doing is making a 3-3 every turn as your opponent's spending all these removal spells to try to keep you from killing them, you're doing all right say nothing of just casting creatures off the top. Normally you start drawing, like you draw a land and your top card's a creature, you get away. Maybe you don't have time to deploy it. Maybe you don't have the ability to build a big enough board that your opponent has to worry about it. Vivian Monsters Advocates says, no, 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 no. Let's keep, let's keep going. Let's keep it going. And then Ram Through and Primal Might, well, they help punch through stalled out complex board states. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth, and uh, both those cards are real good at doing that. In particular, Primal Might on a Questing Beast is horrific because of Death Touch. Like, same goes for Questing Beast and Ram Through, because you only have to assign one point of damage to the creature for it to be lethal. 
And last but not least, Mono Green Aggro is actually not a terrible place to start in post-rotation standard. Straightforward, proactive decks excel in small formats. It's kind of a known thing. Everybody gravitates to Mono Red, to stuff like Winota, to big, dumb aggro decks after, rotating for, after standard rotates. It's not unusual, it's not unheard of, it's not uncommon. Most notably, you maintain your power cards. You still have Questing Beast. You still have Lovestruck Beast. You still have Yorvo. You still have Vivian, Monster's Advocate. You still have Primal Might. You still have Ram Through. You still have Surfangren. Like, what do you need at that point? Early Curve can be supplemented with cards you're already interested in playing. You don't mind playing Ginger Brute in this deck. A one drop can be life gaining your red matchup. Chips in, still picks up your uh, your primal might. Well, you can like you can primal might for one less mana just to make it. You know, you can tap, make it unblock this turn, primal might it, get in there. That'll kill somebody. And then, you know, Stone Coil Serpent is Stone Coil Serpent. It's as big as you need it to be. It's the ditto of your mana curve, whatever you want it to be. It's a bad Pokemon reference, but I made it because I care. <laughs> but that brings us to our main topic for this week. We're going to be talking about the three S's of new standard formats. Because you know me, I like making, uh, I am all about alliteration on this network on the show so we're going to start things off by talking about keeping it simple when you go into a new standard format when the card pool shrinks I know we're going to get Zendikar Rising but we're going to lose the whole Ravnica block we're going to lose Corset 2020, for better or worse. A lot of the tools we've been accustomed to having to kind of hold together our wild, crazy brews are going to be gone. I apologize for the rain in the background. There's not a ton I can do about that. Keeping things simple is one of the safest ways to start playing in a new standard format. I like to say embrace your inner Vince Lombardi. Those of you who don't know, he was a football coach, arguably one of the arguably the best one. And he believed in one simple acronym when it came to the systems that he implemented. Man won multiple league championships under the premise of keep it simple, stupid. Don't try to do too much. I've seen many decks early in standard format life cycles or even late in standard life cycles fall to the premise of being fancy, trying to do a whole bunch, trying to cover all their bases all the time. And that's not healthy. It's not conducive to a good mindset. It's not conducive to good results. It's just, it's a slog. Don't try to do too much. You don't have to break standard every time you build a deck. 
Just make sure your deck does a thing. And to that end, I like to, early on in a standard life cycle, especially with fewer cards to choose from, everybody is pulling from the same small card pool, don't hamstring yourself. Favor efficiency or versatility at every point in your mana curve. Your cards either need to be the best rate they can be or be able to do the most things. Don't try to do both. That goes back to don't try to do too much. Pick a lane, stay in it. And that brings us to the second S. Don't just keep it simple, also keep it straightforward. Your execution needs to be borderline robotic, automatic. Adam Vinatieri in the fourth quarter of Super Bowls, automatic. Not regular season Adam Vinatieri. We don't talk about that. Know and understand your deck. Something, you know, mastery is rewarded in Magic far more than people like to admit. There's a reason Sandy Dog MTG wins so much more with Mono Red than everybody else. That's because Sandy Dog knows how to play Mono Red better than just about everybody else. A lot of us know how to play the deck from a fundamental level. Sandy Dog knows how to play that deck so well that there is no, like, there are very few hiccups when it comes to the process of identifying his sequencing. Oh, excuse me. His sequencing is spot on. Execution is there. There's the hesitation that you see when you watch the stream is decisions about like whether or not to use the limited interaction now or which line of proactive attack are we taking based on what I think they have. It has nothing to do with like trying to figure out what I've got, trying to figure out which thing I need to play in order to stay on curve, in order to stay on target. It's what do I think they have, you know. Know your deck. If your deck has a particular matchup spread, i.e. if your deck is, has a bunch of 80-20 matchups or a bunch of 50-50 matchups, embrace it. Know your role. Be a good game one deck. That's the 80-20 decks. You're either dominant in game ones and then you try to steal some sideboarded games or you embrace the grind and get ready to play three game, three game matches every round. Personally, I'm generally pretty bad at magic, at least at the higher levels. You know, my, my lifetime record at PTQ or above format tournaments. Let's see, I am a combined one and three, one and four. Let's see, one PPTQ and up, we'll say. One and three, one and four, two and two. Uh, two and three. There you go. So one, two, three, four, five, six, and three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. I'm seven, or I'm six and twelve in events above like a game day. 
So if I had to choose one for an event that I'm not positive that I have a realistic chance of just running the table based on how, like, my skill level at Magic alone, I'm going to play something that I feel like gives me 80-20 matchups in a good percentage of my games. That doesn't mean I think I'm 80-20 against the field. It means I think I'm 80-20 against, you know, enough of the good decks that I think people will bring. That's what I'm going to play. That's how I make that choice. But if I make that choice, I don't then turn around and try to make it a really good sideboarding deck. It's not going to be. By nature of how they're built, Game 1 decks don't sideboard as well as decks that are designed to be 70, 75 card decks that have an even spread across the board and sideboard to fix holes. It's just the nature of the beast. Game 1 decks have less flex slots. By that token, don't allow your sideboard decisions to dilute what your deck does. When you're building your sideboard, have your ins and outs in mind. Know what your flex slots are. Make appropriate decisions. Have what packages will come in versus what packages come out in mind as you put everything together. That brings me to the last one. Last S, streamline. Choose early on whether you want to be really efficient or really synergistic. Because those two things rarely walk hand in hand. The most efficient cards on their face usually don't require a lot of synergy to be very efficient. The most powerful cards in conjunction with lots of other cards don't tend to be very powerful on their own. I.e., Edgewall Innkeeper is not very good if you're not playing a lot of adventure creatures. On balance, adventure creatures tend to be pretty good on their own. Whew. Push your choice as far as you can, testing what works and what doesn't. A really good example is the Grixis Croxa deck that I've been championing for a while, or the, the blue-black rogues deck that I've seen floating around in standard. The adventure decks. The adventure decks take the concept of playing Edgewall Innkeeper, Lucky Clover, and adventure cards. They're just like, well, if I mean that's what I want to do, I'm going to do that and nothing else. I'm going to have a wishboard. Sure, that's fine. That's good. I'm okay with that. But what I'm here for is Edgewall Innkeeper and adventure cards and Lucky Clover. That's what I'm about. That's what I'm doing. And that's okay, by the way. <sighs> Those two cards are only as powerful as the number of spells with the word adventure on them as you're playing. So by nature of that, you want to play as many of them as you can. Conversely, a Grixis Croxa deck, or... You know, a Rakdos mid-range deck that wants to build around Croxa and discard spells and grinding your opponent out wants to play a bunch of two-for-ones, wants to play a bunch of cards that force your opponent to act, wants to play a bunch of one-for-one -one discard spells that are really efficient on rate that keep you from falling too far behind. You want to just resolve a bunch of spells that are meaningful that impact the board 
in order to both interact with your opponent and load the graveyard for your Croxa. And last but not least, this applies to every archetype, and I'm going to tell you how. Aggro. Stick to being monocolored or monocolored with a light splash, because our mana is going to be awful after losing Shocklands in October. Unless they print some kind of absolutely ridiculous dual land cycle in October, the mana in this format is going to be really slow because we have temples and triomes for post-rotation. We have temples, triomes, and fable passage. Temples, triomes, and, ta and tap lands. That's going to slow things down an awful lot. So a deck like the Grixis Croxa deck isn't going to have room for a bunch of one-drops in its deck because it's going to need time to deploy these tap lands. You have to consider that in your mana curve. So you're probably going to want to play a lot of twos and fours, maybe a couple of threes that are just good. Or if you've got some threes that are, you know, justifiable on four mana, where you can play a tap land on turn four and just play a three drop, that's fine. But in aggro especially, you want to stick to monocolor, monocolor with a light splash, because unless these lands are just outstanding, you're going to be playing mostly basics and fable passage. And that is a rough place to be as an aggro deck that wants to curve out and kill your opponent as fast as possible. So let's just play, you know, let's play basic mountains and castle Embroth, or basic forests and castle Garenbrook, or uh, basic islands and castle Vantress for the mid game. Yeah, mono blue is still going to be probably okay. Excuse me. Either play the best rate cards or maximize the impact of synergies that you have access to. I.e., play the best things. Curve Ginger Brooder, Stone Coil, Serpent at one mana because they're basically the universal best one drops post rotation into Robber of the Rich and Anax and. To Torbrand and to Embercleave. Or if you intend on using, for example, the card Raid Bombardment, you probably don't actually want to play Anax or Bonecrusher Giant in your deck. You probably still want to play Torbrand, you want to play Robber of the Rich, but you're more interested in cards like uh, Forbidden Friendship. You're more interested in cards like. Um, uh, somebody help me here. I'm, I'm drawing a blank. I had it and I lost it. Cards that put multiple bodies onto the table. Cards that are two mana or less that put two power or less creatures onto the table in order to maximize the impact of Raid Bombardment in conjunction with Torbrand, similar to how we've been doing the Cavalcade of Calamity decks. Although they're a little bit easier to build around because you don't have to play only one power creatures. Like Torbrand attacking alongside Raid Bombardment gives you a trigger. Phoenix of Ash attacking alongside Raid Bombardment gives you a trigger. We have Chandra's Pyroling gives you a trigger. 
Excuse me. But you either play the best rate cards or you push your synergies as far as you can in order to maximize it. You know, if we get a landfall deck, like I remember the Boros landfall deck from the last time around. You played like 12 fetches in your deck so that your step winxes were four fives on turn two as often as possible. And your plated geopedes were five fives on turn three as often as possible. And your searing blazes were three to you and kill your creature as often as possible. That's what you were in for. You played that deck over mono red because you wanted the, the beef. You wanted the extra damage output from the creatures. Yeah, you still got to play Goblin Guide. You still got to play Lightning Bolt. You still got to play Stagger Shot. But you were playing Landfall to play Landfall. So, <coughs> excuse me. That's what you were doing. It's what you wanted. You had a synergy. You had a plan. That's what you were doing. And recognize that by virtue of what aggro decks are, what they do, what they're about, you don't have a lot of flex slots. So identify what they are quickly in the building process and the playtesting process because that makes the process of sideboarding to get your wins in game two and three much more easily. Much more easily. I can't English today. It's been a long week. Moving to mid-range, similar to aggro, choose between your synergy or efficiency and commit. Buy in. If you're going to be a deck that's built around two-for-ones, be a deck that's built around two-for-ones and play as many as you can. Here's looking at you, Grixis Croxa. I tried playing like more of a synergy-driven deck with uh, Luris and Augur Bolas and Lazav. But the version of the deck I've had the most success with is the version that plays cards like Bonecrusher Giant Brazen Borrower to just kind of make my opponent organically spend more cards while I'm picking their hand apart with cards like Thought Erasure and Croxa, post-rotation, there'd be Agonizing Remorse and Croxa. You know, even if you take that deck and streamline it into Rakdos, you still have Agonizing Remorse, Croxa, Bonecrusher Giant, Murderous Rider, Order of Midnight to buy them back. There's a little bit of synergy going on there, but it's just in the form of getting as many two-for-ones as you can. You know, Archfiend's Vessel, Call the Death Dweller are both fine in that kind of a shell. But really what you're about is just putting a bunch of spells in your graveyard, casting a bunch of spells that impact the board, eliminates, agonizing remorses, Make sure they don't Uro you. Make sure they don't get something down that's going to undo all your hard work. But make a choice and commit to it. If you're choosing synergy, your fail state needs to be good enough to justify all the bad cards you're going to be playing. I.e. the cards that don't do anything on their own. Here's looking at you, Edgewall Innkeeper and Lucky Clover. If those cards weren't as good as they are, that deck wouldn't be good. But, conversely, if the adventure cards weren't as good as they are without those two cards, the adventure deck wouldn't be good either. Like, the adventure deck is not a linear combo aggro deck. It's a mid-range deck. It's a value deck. 
The fact of the matter is the synergy is powerful enough to justify going down that road. Similar argument to the uh, energy mechanic. You played as many energy cards as you could, but you got away with doing that because Whirler Virtuoso and Bristling Hydra and uh, Confiscation Coup and Long Tusk Cub were just such really, really good magic cards because you were playing all these energy cards. Like each one of them made all the other ones better. If you're choosing for raw efficiency, just play the best cards. Like, if you can't play the best cards, you probably need to play something else. Uh, keep your matchups as close to even as possible and give yourself room to play through all of them. Give yourself room to play. You want to give yourself the ability to play through your matchups. Give yourself the ability to like make decisions, maximize the impact of the decisions you're making, sideboard well, everything matters. When it comes to control, stick to the fundamentals. Keep your land counts high. Choose the right counter spells, choose the right card draw, choose the right board sweepers, choose the right spot removal. Play appropriate numbers across the board and know how many of them you have to keep in all the time. Have ways to use or get rid of dead cards, I use dead in air quotes, in game ones. Because when you play control, it's just a, a, the nature of the beast. When you play control, just find ways to get rid of cards you can't use. If you accidentally stumble into some synergy when you build your deck, lean into it. Buy in. A really good example is the, the Paulo Vitor Dama de Rosa blue-white control deck from Worlds. Which conveniently was playing like 14 enchantments. Well, that makes Thirst for Meaning better. That makes uh, Archon of Sun's Grace a better card to sideboard into. That makes, for example, something I've been championing, uh, one to two copies of Dance of the Mance in your deck, a solid choice, because it's all, you know, especially if you now are playing Yorian, where you're playing, you know, Yorian and Elspeth Conquer's Death and um, Omen of the Sea and Birth of Miletus and uh, Banishing Light and all these enchantments and Yorian. Well, Dance of the Mance gets better too because you can dump stuff early in the game with Thirst for Meaning. You can sacrifice your stuff to Scry, Omen of the Sun. Well, then when they come back, that, that makes your other cards that care about the synergy a little bit better, but you're still justified in choosing the cards that you did because you're treating Omen of the Sun like a spot removal spell. Like, don't treat Omen of the Sun as a win condition. It's not. It's a, it's a three-mana shock that leaves behind, the, that triggers your synergies and that can be pitched to make Thirst for, thirst for Meaning a two-for-one. 
And then most importantly with a control deck, you have to go in with the right mindset. Go in expecting to lose game one. You are expecting to lose game one. Let me say that again. That doesn't mean you throw it deliberately. But don't go in expecting to win it every time either. Go in with the mindset that you are going to gather as much information as you can in game one. If you win, you win. If the opportunity to win the game presents itself, take it. But your primary goal in game one is to gather as much information as you can so that you can sideboard appropriately and destroy them in games two and three. Control decks are built to be good game two and three decks. If your control deck is only good in game one, there's some bad news for you. (laughs) It's probably not going to be winning a ton. So that's all I've got for this week, everybody. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed Uh, we've got, we, we've had a little bit of a rough week here in the Homeward Path household, but there were some silver linings. Uh, my daughter Esther had to have spinal surgery today and because of COVID, they were only allowing one parent with the child at the hospital. So I had to stay home with the boys and go to work today. So... That's how I was able to record today. But Esther made it through her surgery. She is recovering well. She's eating. She's doing well. So we're thankful for that. We also have a little bit of an update on the quote-unquote Homeward Path Studios. Because we made a little bit of a life decision this week. And finally decided to get a vehicle that was large enough to accommodate the entire household. For those of you who don't know, that is myself, my wife Sarah... Our three children and my, and Sarah's sister, Rachel. And for a long time, we just had a vehicle that sat five people comfortably. Well, now we have one that sits seven for our six-person household. And because of the nature of uh, programs that we're having to take advantage of in order to afford Esther's medical care, we cannot have multiple, you know, we can't have a whole bunch of vehicles. So the car that I've had for the last seven years is being sold, but that puts me into a new vehicle for recording episodes of Homeward Path. So new home, who dis? I don't know. I'm I'm out of ideas. Uh, But if I had to pick a deck to play this week for, for standard, I would probably lean toward playing something that took advantage of tempo because I see a lot of the Sultai mid-range decks and I love cheesing mid-range decks with bad tempo brews. Call me a glutton for self-punishment. It's just kind of what I'm about. If I had to pick a deck for historic, I really, really, really like the uh, Rakdos Pyromancer list that I've seen floating around. Mason's played it. John Ramos has played it. It looks sweet. I mean, Young Pyromancer links arms with Croxa, Luris's companion. What more? What more can you ask for? That seems like such a sweet deck. So, that's all I've got for this week, everybody. Again, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you will 
tune back in next week. If you are if you are a patron or you're going to become a patron and you want your deck featured on Brew of the Week, send it to me. We'll talk about it. I want to. Because it is exhausting building all these by myself. <laughs> so thank you again, Brandon, for sending me your deck, first of all, and for being the patron that you are. But without further ado, it's time for the ending segment every week. We are doing hashtag MTG Dad Jokes. Our first one, let's go down the list, scroll down, uh, right there. Oh, I only have two. It's a little disappointing, I'm not going to look. But our first one is from Brian Gottlieb. It says, trying to win in historic, but prefer to play a rogue deck. Don't worry, I've got your back. And then he shared a list that is a uh, Thieves Guild Enforcer deck with... Nightshade Stinger, which is a fairy rogue. Una's Blackguard, which is a fairy rogue. Tiny Bones, which is a, I can't remember, creature type rogue. And Robber of the Rich, which is a rogue. Ten Street Dodger, which is a goblin rogue. And Rankle Master Prakes, who is a fairy rogue. Which takes advantage of Thieves Guild Enforcer's ability to mill cards. And Robber of the Rich's ability to cast spells that you exile off the top of your opponent's library. And Una's Blackguard's ability to get in there and rip your opponent's hand apart. It's a super sweet looking deck, but I'm here for the joke. Playing a rogue deck, you don't get much more rogue than actual rogues. And last but not least, come on, click the right button, you... Says Wizard sure did miss an opportunity to pre-print fetches in the dog secret lair drop. I I would love to see just a POV shot of the dog playing fetch in this landscape as the fetch land. I don't know anybody who would disagree with that. I think that's sweet. I think that's awesome. But that's all I've got for this week, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh Questions, comments, concerns, send them to me on Twitter. I'm at Homeward Path MTG on Facebook. My name is Adam Spain. In the Facebook group for the show, the Homeward Pathfinders, in the Heasy Game Media Discord, I'm in there. If you are a patron, you're obviously in the Patron Pathfinders Discord. And last but not least, I can't leave without reminding you, everybody's going through stuff between COVID, election politics, and just day-to-day -day struggles. Everybody's going through something. You never know what somebody else is going through. So when you're dealing with other people, when you're interacting with other people, whether in person, online, webcam, referring to them indirectly, the 12th doctor comes to us speaking words of wisdom saying, never be cruel, never be cowardly. Remember that hate is always foolish. Love is always wise. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So go forth, get ready for rotation, and be kind. And we'll catch you next week. Be safe, everyone.